This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Sung with Subversity here on KUCI. Uh, today we're going to be uh, talking about the controversial issue of gay marriage, but with a different twist. Uh, our guest today will be uh, a law professor who has written a book uh, on this topic, uh, but arguing that it's wrong, actually, to focus our energies on getting marriage. How about all the other relationships that um, exist in our society? Uh, America has changed. America is not just... People aren't just getting married and living together. They're living together without getting married. And what does getting gay, gays the right to marry mean for those other people who are not uh, married? There are cases where this has happened in other places, in other states, in Massachusetts, for instance, where gay marriage is uh, legal. And yet... Um, even though it was legal, it uh, now means that a lot of people who are not married but were domestic partners living together have been threatened with loss of their health insurance. So we will be broaching that topic uh, momentarily. Um, stay tuned. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, with us on the phone is Nancy Polikoff, uh, who's the author of a new book on this topic uh, called Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, um, I was wondering why you wrote this book. Ah, uh, well, um, I teach law students, and I discovered um, an entire generation of young people who thought that um, the only thing that was wrong with marriage was that same-sex couples didn't have access to it and that the only thing that um, lesbian and gay families needed from the law was access to marriage. And I realized that there was a huge information gap between um, those of us who were around early in the feminist second-wave feminist movement and gay rights movement who had a critique of marriage, who uh, put family diversity at the center of any family policy, and um, the people who had grown up really um, since the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 thinking of marriage as the uh, centerpiece of any family law issues affecting same-sex couples. So um, I wanted to fill that gap. Uh, we called it actually gay liberation movement in the early days. We did. And so that, uh, to me, it was different from the current focus because we wanted uh, sexual liberation and all sorts of relationships were, um, you know, sought. And we didn't really want the state to, we didn't even think about marriage at, in those days. Well, you know, I'm, um, the book is written uh, to be about the law and how the law should treat families and relationships and individuals. So, you know, I try not to get in too much to... Um, that particular cultural conversation, but certainly what I can tell you about the advocacy then in terms of public policy was that really the, the nascent gay rights movement was part of a larger movement that thought marriage was part of the problem, not part of the solution, and that um, we participated in coalitions with other groups to support uh, single mothers, to support communal households, um, and that came up in a variety of, of advocacy ways, and um, that has just been much less so uh, as I think the country has gotten more conservative and the, the gay rights movement has, um, you know, fed into that mainstream approach to families. Uh, do, you, do you trace this to the kind of the uh, right-wing kind of backlash in the Reagan years uh, when, um, you know, at first in your book and in your article, I read your article in, uh, in the D'Amelio uh, uh, edited book, um, you also um, 
you portrayed uh, more kind of a uh, more kind of free thinking and uh, kind of uh, accepting of different types of relationship uh, by the law by different court cases I mean at the beginnings of that and yet eventually when the right started uh, arguing that marriage should be protected then that uh, shifted the focus for the movement well I do think that um you know, I do think we, we did run into a backlash in the mid and late 1970s. Um, you know, for our movement, it's personified by Anita Bryant. Oh, but yeah. at the same time, we had um, a backlash against feminism, a backlash against abortion rights for women. Uh, so the ERA was killed. Um, all sorts of limits were placed on women seeking abortions. I mean, we have the right today in the Constitution, but that period of time in the mid to late 70s saw um, some very major um, limits put on that right, like uh, public hospitals don't have to perform abortions, uh, poor people don't have to have Medicaid pay for abortions, um, all sorts of um, waiting periods and other kind of um, you know, limiting limiting uh, principles are possible um, that make abortion m- more difficult than you know those of us who were involved early on wanted it to be. And so there was this backlash against these changes that had to do with um, women's equality, um, reproductive freedom, and gay rights. And um, we, in some ways, are still living with the consequences of that. The um, original backlash, I think, was very grounded in religion. Um, it, it morphed into a backlash that tries to use social science arguments. In the in the book, I talk about the um, the Dan Quayle was right moment. You know that um, that you know I think a lot of people who were around then do remember Dan Quayle giving a speech after the Los Angeles riots, essentially blaming the riots and all sorts of. Um, other social problems on women having children without husbands, and and this was right before the um, election at which Bill Clinton was elected, right before the 1992 presidential election, and um, the response to Dan Quayle um, was overwhelmingly negative. I mean, the media said he needed to, you know, get with the program and see all the different kinds of families that were raising children. Um, really, he was kind of vilified, um, even in the mainstream media, for that point of view. And yet a year later, um, the Atlantic magazine has a big cover article, Dan Quayle was right, um, and you have President Clinton himself saying, you know, there were a lot of good things in that speech. Um, and so from that point on, we have a claim in the name of social science that um, that the decline of lifelong heterosexual marriage is responsible for all our social problems. And, you know, I say this sometimes mm-hmm. to people, and, and people think, oh, well, you must be exaggerating, and I'm really not. If you see the list of problems that those organizations um, blame on the decline of lifelong heterosexual marriage, I mean, it includes chronic illness, infant mortality, poverty, uh, crime, domestic violence, substance abuse. I mean, the list is really quite endless. Uh, and we have not come out of that period, I don't think. And and so, um, you know, when the gay rights movement, uh, which is part of a larger society, of course, hears marriage being praised, it's very easy then to say, yeah, marriage really is terrific, but let us have it too. Um, and not to question marriage as um, the organizing principle for law and policy. And I want to distinguish this from the sort of civil rights issue. Uh, you know, yes, of course, if straight couples can marry, gay couples should be able to marry as a civil rights issue. But um, much of what's being said about marriage um, in some of the you know, gay rights material is about how important marriage is uh, for civilization and a desire <laughs> to be part of that, um, and it's that rhetoric that I have trouble with, rhetoric about what's good family policy as opposed to rhetoric about civil rights. Uh, you trace in the book, you trace the beginnings of the gay turn to, to adopting uh, gay marriage as a strategy to some uh, columnists also, uh, Andrew Sullivan and then a conservative gay columnist uh, embracing uh, gay marriage as a goal. 
Um, how, how, why did that happen that way? Well, you know, one of the legal victories of the late eight, 1980s was a decision out of the um, highest court in New York that a man whose partner had died of AIDS, um, they lived in a rent-controlled apartment in New York City, and the surviving partner wanted to stay in that apartment, but his name wasn't on the lease. And the landlord tried to evict him, uh, anyone who's ever... Uh, lived in New York City knows how important rent-controlled apartments are, and he had lived in this apartment for 12 years with his partner. Uh, but the landlord said, look, your name's not on the lease, and you're not a member of the tenant's family, so you don't get to stay. And the New York Court of Appeals ruled that, in fact, he was a member of the deceased tenant's family, and they discussed family in very functional terms, in terms of how these two people had really lived together. And Andrew Sullivan, and this was widely hailed as a great gay rights victory, and in addition, um, groups were represented in front of the court briefs in that case that um, that represented people with AIDS of any sexual orientation, um, poor people, people who lived in extended family units. I mean, there was a big diver- family diversity push um, in the context of that case because of the number of other people who wouldn't be considered family members and therefore could get evicted. Um, so the victory was really great, and Andrew Sullivan wrote a column basically saying he didn't like all this wishy-washy, you know, not very precise idea about what a family was, and the solution really was that gay people should be able to marry. Um, and, and I don't think that and the that position as it developed um, afterwards, I wouldn't say that is responsible for the push by itself. I mean, the other thing that happened was that in 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court actually made it plausible to argue in court that denying access to marriage to same-sex couples was a violation of a state constitution, and that's because the Hawaii Supreme Court said it might well be a violation of their state constitution, and there had to be a trial where the state would have to explain why it was banning same-sex couples from marriage. Now, we all know Hawaii did amend its constitution, so um, we never did get marriage for same-sex couples in Hawaii, but... The dawning of the moment when it actually became not just theoretical, not a losing court strategy, but a a plausible and possibly winning court strategy to argue that these bans were unconstitutional, that resulted in an enormous amount of legal effort um, and, uh, and resources. Going in, yeah. going into fighting for same-sex marriage. So um, you have that coupled with the sort of conservative gay voice that comes through. Um, Andrew Sullivan then basically publishes his book, Virtually Normal, where he says that you know marriage is really the only thing that matters. And so you, you have these things happening in 1993 um, that I think have affected everything that's happened since. You mentioned an earlier case uh, in Minnesota, which uh, Jack Baker is it, a uh, librarian, a librarian uh, at University of Minnesota, or was it in the public library? Public library, and uh, maybe at Minnesota University. And um, he uh, he was also trying to get uh, get was it domestic partnership uh, rights? Uh, what, what was that case? Well, that was a marriage case. I mean, in the very early, early 1970s, there were a couple of marriage cases brought, not with the support of any, um, you know, national gay legal organizations, which really didn't exist at the time, but, um, you know, individuals who brought these cases, and all of which lost and which um, contributed to um, the lawyers thinking for a long time that there was no point in bringing the cases because they were doomed to lose, and that's really what the '93 decision in Hawaii turned around. So the the, the focus then became that um, you could uh, try to argue for equality, that uh, you know this equal protection of the law, but you feel that that is misplaced, or I mean, isn't it okay to get civil rights? What 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 is um, the the queasiness about that strategy? Well, I, um, I certainly agree in equal rights and and in civil rights, and that's why I say that um, as long as straight couples can marry, equality for gay couples is the right approach as a civil rights matter. But 
my um, queasiness and uneasiness about the way um, the argument is is um, is taking place now in most places is that these family policy arguments are put forward and the importance of marriage to society is sort of extolled. And so, um, I mean, for example, I would say a, a lot of arguments are made about children. Children need their same-sex couple parents to have access to marriage because marriage is so good for children. Now, if people are going to say, if people are going to say that um, that the children of same-sex parents need their need the law to permit marriage equality because anything else sends a message that gay people are inferior and we don't want the children who grow up with us as parents to get that message. I'm all for that because I, um, I don't want the children raised by gay and lesbian couples or singles to get the message that there's something wrong with being gay. And so equality sends a good message. But if the argument is, look how good marriage is for the children of different sex couples, if you don't let um, same-sex couples marry, you're hurting the children um, because marriage is so good for children, you are really taking a page out of a very right-wing playbook. It's a playbook that um, believes that children should only be born to married heterosexual women and that there shouldn't be divorce, that there should be a re-stigmatization of, of childbirth outside of marriage. They um, completely distort the social science research. Um, they are part of an, a larger right-wing movement that, that tries to privatize everything so that rather than seeing income inequality or poor education or lack of access to health care as bad for children, they're going to blame everything on the decline of lifelong heterosexual marriage. And so I don't want, I don't want you know, my people in the gay rights movement making those arguments. Um, they're bad arguments. And, uh, I, and I get very upset when those are the arguments that I see. It's almost saying that uh, unless you have uh, two fathers or two mothers, then it's a dysfunctional family. Well, that's true. It does um, reflect poorly on single gay men and lesbians um, who raise children. But, um, you know, I think, and I think people should be sensitive to the larger political climate in which um, sort of extolling marriage, promoting marriage takes place. That's why I was actually, I now understand why uh, in Orange County, there's this uh, libertarian conservative paper, um, Orange County, uh, OC Register, Orange County Register, and they actually came out and, and uh, asked people to vote against Prop 8. Um, uh, and they actually, you know, support the right of uh, gay people to uh, get married. And it's actually a conservative goal in some sense. Well, I, I mean, certainly many people see it that way. I don't think I need to label the goal conservative. I, I mean, I do think equality is a is a powerful goal to have. Um, I just don't want it to turn out that some families are first class families in the in the gay community. That would be those who marry, and everybody else can be treated poorly, um, including unpartnered LGBT people who have needs for emotional peace of mind and economic security that aren't going to be met by this emphasis on on marriage. And, and I don't want them excluded from uh, the kinds of social policies that we develop. One of the impacts of, uh, of gay marriage and they are getting rid, and some states there, it seems like, uh, in Massachusetts, there's this move to get rid of uh, domestic partnership after gay marriage was legalized. Um, one of the consequences is that people who are, were in domestic partnerships are threatened with loss of uh, their health benefits. You know, I would love, ideally, I would love to um, give a new name to marriage for everybody. You know, uh, I suggest in the book calling it civil partnership. Right. Um, you know, and turning marriage itself into a word that means to various cultural 
um, organizations or groups and religious organizations or groups, whatever they want it to mean, but to have the state um, use the language of partnership. Um, I actually love that for a lot of reasons, including the fact that um, the the baggage that of uh, subordination of women that goes with marriage, right. I think would really be halted um, if instead of, you know, husband and wife, um, we had partners. Um, but, you know, that um, that's something we don't see happening. I thought it was very interesting in the California case. Um, and, and some people wrote about this at the time, and it probably could deserve a little more analysis that, The California Supreme Court actually asked all the parties the question, could we eliminate marriage and replace it with something by another name? And the gay rights groups answered that question by saying no. (laughs) And I really did disagree with that. I mean, I just, I, I think that's just dead wrong. Fortunately, when the Supreme Court wrote its opinion, it actually alluded to the possibility that the name could be changed for everyone. It didn't foreclose that entirely. Um, and, and I was disappointed that um, that the gay rights groups didn't feel that they could take the position that what's at stake here is equality and that if the state of California wanted to eliminate the word marriage and turn it into domestic partnerships or whatever it wanted to call it for everybody, that that would be a perfectly acceptable um, resolution, because I do believe that would be acceptable. Yeah, what's, not I, yeah, acceptable what's not acceptable is to let straight couples marry and give gay couples only the option of domestic partnership. That's unequal. That's, um, you know, a, a real diss. I mean, that's just basically saying you guys aren't as good as we are. So that's really not acceptable. But, um, part, you know, civil partnership for everyone, I say bring it on. So are you saying that it should be separated from uh, kind of religious uh, implications. Definitely. So, I mean, uh, you yeah. know, and religions, of course, are free to do anything they want. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a minister today isn't going to be forced to conduct a marriage if his white right. parishioner wants to marry a black man and he doesn't approve of that. <laughs> the state's not going to make him do that. You know, that's his right in his, you know, in his faith to decide who to marry, um, and, and that will, that ought to remain the right of religions to, you know, decide anything they want about um, their people. You know, the Catholic Church requires um, a certain amount of premarital counseling before it will marry people. Um, you know, the, the state doesn't do that. Um, so I don't have any problem with religions getting to uh, control who marries within the religion. You know, my concern is the law. The, uh, you don't see it as separate but uh, separate but equal uh, kind of thing if 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 you know if gay marriage uh, I mean if it, would it be separate but equal or unequal then if uh, if gays uh, had to have domestic partnerships but straight people could get married it's definitely um, stigmatizing to mm-hmm. do that but I, I guess I would respond to you, uh, you know, with it, to, to encourage people to think um, slightly differently about that, which is it is stigmatizing. It shouldn't be that way. But now let's ask the question, do we want to pour scarce resources into a battle for marriage once we have the separate but equal domestic partnerships, or do we want to pour that money into other um, issues that matter very much to gay people? And at that point, you know, I think people can and obviously do disagree about um, how, how significant, once you have legal equality so that same-sex couples who register do have the protections under state law that different sex couples who marry have. And, of course, we're leaving out federal law because of the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, But, you know, then the question is, okay, what do we want to spend our limited amount of money on? And at that point, I think, um, you know, a good argument can be made that 
at that point, fighting for marriage is the wrong priority. And and I I think, I mean, I, I feel quite confident, and I think the voting on Prop 8 supports this. Um, you know, gay marriage is going to happen. Uh, I yeah. say it's inevitable. If you look at the polling data, 61% of the people under 30 right, supported same-sex marriage. 61% of the 65-year-old and older people opposed it. Well, the people who are 65 and older um, are either going to change or die. And the people who are under 30 are going to get older and be replenished by more people under 30 who are going to support equality are going to support gay rights, support marriage. And so it is going to happen. Um, and it's just a question of when. Right. And so then the question is, we've got this thing that's going to be inevitable. So how much money do we want to pour into speeding it up um, when there are so many other things that really right. matter to gay people? I yeah. think that's the question yeah. I'd like people yeah, to be true. addressing. It's like uh, when I know the gay movement um, uh, earlier was debating whether to f- focus the energy on fighting um, criminal law, sta- uh, statutes on sodomy versus, uh, you know, trying to get gay marriage. And there was, uh, of course, trying to, I mean, getting criminal law uh, decriminalized was a big thing. Um, and then, of course, the Supreme Court decision uh, over- overturned sodomy statutes um, actually recently and not that far ago long ago um but um in terms of uh, other issues to fight it seems to me if we fought for universal health care then it wouldn't be such a big deal whether it was domestic partnership or whatever all sorts of relationships should be would be covered well if we had universal health care you wouldn't have to be in relationship to anybody to have your health needs satisfied i mean i certainly think universal health care is critical to the well-being of LGBT people. And you're absolutely right. Um, There was a a study done last year by the Kaiser Family Foundation that found a very high percentage of people, 7%, saying that they got married for health insurance benefits. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, that wasn't about gay people. But but I can tell you for myself personally – Um, I work at American University where I teach in the law school. We have domestic partner benefits for same-sex couples only um, so that if you are heterosexual at my school um, and you uh, do have a partner and that person needs health care through your work, you have to get married. Well, I I have a partner who has no other access to health care other than through my domestic partner benefits. If where I live was to pass gay marriage, and then my employer was to say, well, we don't need domestic partner benefits anymore. We'll cover you if you get married, and we won't cover you if you don't, which is what they say to straight couples. I would have to marry my partner, even though, you know, I'm quite well known for my skepticism about marriage. (laughs) Um, And that's because I I can't leave her without access to health insurance. Um, I mean, that would be unconscionable. And so... If we had universal health care, she would need me to get health insurance, to get health care. Um, and, uh, you know, there isn't anything else that, that uh, would make me make a decision to get married. That happened in um, Massachusetts. Uh, the New York Times Corporation, which owns the Boston Globe, um, after Massachusetts legalized gay marriage, uh, sent a memo out to employees of the Boston Globe saying that they would have to get married if they want to keep the health insurance, uh, because they were, New York Times Corporation would not offer domestic partnership benefits anymore. I, I don't know if that actually got in, went into effect. There were a number of employers in Massachusetts who did just that. Yeah, that did definitely happen. Did universities, like, what happened at uh, University of California? I know we have domestic partner. I thought it covered more than gay people. I don't know what the University of California partner benefits are. Yeah, I, think I do it, not know that. It actually does cover more and uh, it uh, more than uh, uh, same, same sex are really uh, partners. And it, it's, uh, it's probably 
it's similar to the state uh, registration requirement, I think, that uh, you have to li either live together or it's either you have some evidence of living together for six months, I think, or you have registered with the state. Uh, so that's a question whether that would happen, uh, what would happen to the, those uh, relationships uh, or those legal... Yeah, I'm, not yeah. I'm just not familiar with that. What happens to the people that did get married in California? Uh, do you think the court will uh, let them be stay married or what? You know, I, I think that's something that is going to be settled over the next period of time, and I actually don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know the Attorney General has come out and said, yes, um, these marriages are valid. Certainly there will be a challenge at some point, and the court will be the body that settles that. And I, I haven't looked into, you know, I haven't done my own legal research and looked into the issue enough to know for sure. Um, certainly I would want to argue that they're valid, um, but again... If I, you know, that would be my position. If I was taking a position on it, that's a different question from allocation of scarce resources in gay rights groups. You know, do we want the resources to go into litigating the validity of the marriages for that period of time, or do we want to spend them on something else? And um, I think that's a continuing question. What about the issue of binational couples, uh, people whose partners are from abroad and they're trying to get them uh, into this country or, or let them stay here? Um, how does any of this affect that? Sure. Um, you know, I did a lot of research um, when I was writing Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage, and, and I um, learned some amazing uh, things that I was able to share with people in the book. And, and one of them has to do with this very issue and how it is um, implemented around the world. So um, absolutely, there's a problem in the United States that if you are in a binational relationship, there is no way for the gay or lesbian American citizen to sponsor his or her same-sex partner to come and live here, and that has tragic consequences for people in those relationships. And um, the um, effort now in Congress is some kind of legislative reform that would create a category for those people that would allow them to come here. And one of the um, points of argument in favor of that legislative reform is to point out the many countries in the world that already allow their citizens to bring in a same-sex partner. I, I can't remember exactly. It's something like 22, and most of the countries we would consider our Western allies. Sweden, do, Sweden and such, right? Yeah, but also um, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, I mean, there's a there's a Israel. I mean, there's there's quite a long list of them that I have in the book. Um, and they don't have to be married. Well, here's the point that I make in the book that um, that is something again that that doesn't really come into American discussion is that um, in in of all of those countries, there are many of them that either allow same-sex marriage or um, allow registered partnerships for same-sex couples like the Scandinavian countries um, and some other European countries. So there's a, there is a, a, a status you can have for your relationship. But in all except a couple of the countries that are listed as allowing same-sex partners to, to immigrate, um, there is no requirement even for heterosexual couples that they be married. Huh. So basically you have in these countries an immigration policy that says if you have a partner relationship with somebody, Usually there's a durational requirement, um, and uh, or if you haven't been able to live together because of immigration restrictions, you can show in other ways that you've been in a relationship for 18 months or some other period of time, two years. You can sponsor that person. So these countries do not require their heterosexual citizens huh. to marry somebody from another country in order to sponsor them for immigration. Um, and, you know, here, of course, this would be a much 
part of a much larger issue about immigration reform, and there's all this concern about fraud. But when you think about it, those countries are much less likely to have fraud because they do require that the relationship have existed for some period of time. I think people are astonished to learn that you can sponsor somebody to emigrate here as a spouse because you marry that person, even if you only met that person once before you ever got married. <laughs> so you, you, there's no other, there's no proof of relationship needed. As long as you met them face-to-face once, um, you can... Um, you know, sponsor them to become an American citizen based on your marriage, while other countries take a different approach. They want to see a real relationship, and they don't care if you're married or not married, gay or straight. So I would love to see us move in that direction um, where, you know, what we're looking at is the relationship involved and its importance to the citizen as opposed to, you know, a dividing line of marriage. But DOMA... um a Defense of Marriage Act would have to be overturned for that to work, right? Well, no, actually, DOMA oh, just, says, Doma, yeah, Doma just says that where there are re- references to spouses in federal law, uh-huh. um, that's only a man and a woman. There, there's nothing in DOMA that c- would stop the Congress from oh, saying, oh, from replacing the, the marriage um, criteria for immigrating with a set of criteria related to an actual relationship. But, you know, we don't see any push for that. I mean, that's because, you know, to argue that people shouldn't have to be married (laughs) in many ways looks more radical. Oh, for sure. Than an argument that, you know, gay couples who can't marry but who look like they, you know, would if they could ought to be able to emigrate. Right now, uh, actually, I'm uh, curating an exhibit on immigration uh, in the library here. Uh, I'm a librarian at UC Irvine. And we have a current exhibit called Immigrant Lives uh, in the OC um, and beyond, so-called OC. And um, one of the exhibit cases I um, focused uh, to gay immigration, the, the ban on immigration, uh, when mm-hmm. uh, from the McCarran Act of uh, 1952, um, homosexuals were considered uh, people with psychopathic, psychopathic personalities sexual perverts and excluded from entering, from immigrating, uh, immigrating to the U.S. Uh, and one of the graduate students here, Lionel Cantu, had uh, done his Ph.D. on this uh, issue of uh, mm-hmm. binationals and uh, anti-gay uh, ban. And uh, he ended up being a gra- uh, professor at Cal- uh, UC Santa Cruz and unfortunately uh, died shortly mm-hmm. after. So I have his book, uh, his dissertation that turned into a book, and uh, a human rights, I think, uh, uh, NGO book that uh, actually talks about this whole issue, the issue that gives him credit for pioneering the research into this issue. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, but most people don't realize that gay people were banned from entry. Um, well, before. yes, and, and then even as things got slightly better, I mean, until yeah. 1973... Uh, homosexuality was a mental illness. Right. So yeah. it was possible to ban gay people, you know, for possessing a mental illness. Um, right. So, yes, I think it's safe to say there have been many improvements over the years. But uh, recently, I think the Congress actually did implement, uh, uh, they're waiting for, I think, the Homeland Security uh, ICE to, um, to implement it. Uh, they did vote to do away with the ban on people with AIDS. Uh, yes, I've, I've read a little bit about that. I don't know the details of it, right. but I have. Um, I, I, it's definitely moving in the right direction. So you think this Obama uh, administration is likely to do any of this stuff? I know he he was against gay marriage, but he uh, he asked people to vote against Prop 8, uh, Obama. And um, in addition, if you look on his website... You know, if you go to change.gov and you look under the Obama agenda, you do see um, unequivocal support for adoption by lesbians and gay men. Um, In this uh, political climate, given what we saw in Arkansas, uh, you know, in the election, I think that... What happened in Arkansas? In Arkansas, there was an initiative on the ballot um, banning uh, anybody who was living with an unmarried partner of you know, same sex or different sex, from becoming a foster parent or an adoptive parent. And so, of course, this was explicitly to ban gay people from adopting, but it, it, 
it even goes further. Yeah. Um, it, it bans a heterosexual person from adopting if he or she is living with an unmarried partner. And we, um, we know there are going to be additional efforts made to have initiatives like that on other state ballots in maybe a half a dozen states in the next couple of years. So the Obama position that um, is very supportive of, of adoption um, by gay men and lesbians and gay couples as well as uh, straight couples, um, I, I think that um, obviously that's a matter of state law. It's not a matter of federal law. It's not something he'll have direct control over. Yeah. But if he can really um, put some uh, muscle behind that position, that will really be terrific um, for stopping this right-wing attack on our families. And um, he does favor repeal of DOMA. And I'm not really expecting that in the first year. Yeah. I, and I, I don't... I don't know that any uh, gay rights groups are, but um, I uh, I think it's not unreasonable to think that you know in the first term um, he uh, you know he might push for uh, at least at the beginning changing the part of DOMA that um, says the federal government won't recognize. Um, marriage of same-sex couples. But there are some small things he can do. Um, I, you may have heard there's a big um, dispute over how the census is yeah. going to count same-sex couples who say that they're married. Um, and the current position is, well, they're not married under federal law, so we're not going to count them as married. Because of DOMA, um, they can't. They can't exactly. But, you know, I'm yeah. not sure that's, I mean, that's their argument. Yeah, I don't think that's um, true. I, yeah. I, I, since the census is about counting people, yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, and being accurate about it, uh, there's a, yeah. the Williams yeah. Institute at UCLA has right. been very actively working with the census to, to try, you know, the Department of Commerce. And so, you know, we may get a change in that. And, oh, yeah. Um, it's going to be it's going to be better times. But um, I actually have a concern, though, that um, I'm hoping gay rights groups are uh, are going to get behind um, some efforts that I think are very important um, that are about valuing family diversity. So, for example, I talk in the book about the $750 million taxpayer dollars that are being spent on marriage promotion, yeah. of course, for heterosexuals. You know, that should be out of the federal budget. The, the federal government should not be in the business of um, promoting marriage, period. Um, it should be in the business of strengthening all the different kinds of families in which people raise children um, and providing real resources to make people's lives better. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, hoping to be part of an effort um, with gay rights groups and feminist groups and uh, others to um, shut down the stream. I mean, it's unbelievable this amount of money coming out of the federal government um, to support these efforts to promote marriage, the agenda, the uh, curriculum used in the programs often have a religious um, overtone to them about, you know, marriage under God's law. Um, there's certainly not an emphasis on not an emphasis on equality for men and women. Um, there's there's not at all. There's there's an explicit lack of emphasis on uh, strengthening all relationships. It's very marriage-driven, um, and, and I, I think we need to try to encourage Obama to um, redirect that money to something that, you know, really helps all people. For sure. Uh, traditional values, basically, uh, were the hallmark of the Bush administration, or at least they, you know, they tried to portray themselves as sure. a proponent of that. But uh, also, what, happened, what would happen, you think, with abstinence education? Well, at least, um, you know, that is an explicit position and was in the Obama platform and then to abstinence-only sex education. And, and I think... Um, that is, it's, he's for it or he's against it? He's for ending abstinence-only oh, yeah, sex yeah. education. He's in favor of comprehensive sex education. Um, and I don't talk about this so much in the book, but, um, you know, that abstinence-only sex education is bad for... Um, gay kids and the children of gay kids at so many levels. I mean, not only is it just stupid, you know, because, of course, it doesn't work. Work, but, But, 
you know, part of what has to be taught in that curriculum is that heterosexual activity within marriage is the only acceptable uh, kind of sex. And so, um, you know, that's deeply offensive. And uh, and I'm I'm hopeful that uh, that that will get reworked into um, a, an approach that's more about comprehensive uh, sex education where, you know, abstinence is taught and uh, birth control and other things are taught and where sexuality is taught in a more open and expansive way. Um, so yeah. we'll have to see about that. We're talking with uh, Nancy Polikoff, who's the author of Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage, uh, valuing all families under the law from Beacon Press. Uh, and uh, this is Subversity here on KCI with Dan Zhang, uh, on um, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Um, I'm a data librarian, a social science data librarian, and I'm always um, um, aware of the way loaded questions seem to be asked in surveys. For instance, they will always ask if you have uh, there's a question on premarital sex, and I always wondered why is it premarital? Does it expect? Do they expect everybody to get married? Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like you know, talking about uh, following up on your uh, um, point about the census, uh, not even collecting data. Uh, the way sometimes uh, questions are asked ends up with uh, you know certain results, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, do you see that Obama would do anything on binational couples uh, g- getting into this country? You know, I have not uh, looked to see if he has a platform position on that. So, I mean, there's a bill pending in Congress. I assume right. it will be reintroduced, um, the Uniting American Families Act. I do not know the Obama position on that. Uh, do you know if the I hear that the is it the Arizona governor is going to be the head of uh, uh, um, of immigration? Yeah, uh, Janet Napolitano. Yeah, has she taken any position on on that kind of stuff? Well, she hasn't been in a place where she would take a position on that, <laughs> but I can tell you that um, she is. Um, she certainly she did oppose the Arizona Marriage Initiative, and. Um, she opposed the uh, fence, right? Also, building a fence on the that's border. That's true. That's yeah. true. So, um, you know, she gets high praise from um, gay folks in the state of Arizona. So, um, you know, maybe she will be an ally there. I don't know. Right. Do you see yourself as um, put in a corner for coming out against gay marriage? Well, I don't really come out against gay marriage. I mean, I come out, in fact... Um, I have in previous writings over many years written about abolishing marriage as a state um, institution, and I and I I took a different position in this book. I I actually um, came out in favor of not making marriage the dividing line between relationships that count and those that don't, and I did advocate changing the name of marriage, but I actually didn't. wind up advocating abolishing marriage. And so I've actually been challenged from some of the fans of my earlier work uh-huh. about why I didn't stick to my guns on abolishing marriage uh-huh. entirely. Uh-huh. And, and um, why didn't you, you know, why didn't, why didn't I? Well, I'll tell you, I do have an answer to that. And, and I don't know if it's a good answer or not, but in what I think of as perhaps an uncharacteristic show of humility, over the years I was researching this book, I just heard so many gay couples express so much the desire to marry that I just made a decision that I wasn't going to take a position that told all those people they were wrong to want what they wanted. Um, It it has a meaning for people that seems to transcend anything rational. (laughs) And and I, I just decided to honor that meeting for for the individual gay and lesbian couples who I heard express these points of view. Um, So that's why I didn't come out for for, um, abolishing it entirely. How about, uh, what's the other relationships you're talking about? If you want to go beyond uh, gay or straight marriage, 
What are the types of relationships? Maybe you could uh, clarify what that means. Well, sure. What, I mean, I think the best way to do that is to clarify the methodology that I use in the book. So what I do is I say, let's look at all of the laws now that make marriage a dividing line. And uh, whether those are property division when a relationship ends, who gets survivor's benefits if somebody dies. You know, let's look at every single law where being married is the difference between, you know, being on the inside or being on the outside. And let's ask what the purpose of that law is. And I think that when we can uh, clearly state what the purpose of the law is, then we can decide how to rewrite that law without marriage being the dividing line and in order to achieve the purpose of the law. So let's take the example of um, a couple who separates after years of living together um, and, and somebody has to figure out what happens to all of the property and money that they've acquired uh, during that period of time. Well, if the couple is married, um, we don't look to contracts law or property law. We look to law that applies at divorce that basically assumes that this is a couple that's functioned as a unit yeah. And there should be, uh, in order to do justice, there should be some, some measure of equality balancing a number of factors in dividing the property and the money. Well, what happens if they're not married to each other? If they're not married to each other, those rules are totally out the window. And the only thing that can happen if there's one person who's about to be left with no assets is that you can let that person try to prove an actual contract, an agreement. Well, you know, if you live with me and, um, and raise the children um, and we ever split up, I'll give you half the assets. Or that the person contributed financially to the property. And you know, really almost nobody can meet that test. So you have a grave injustice when unmarried couples split up if you're, if what the purpose of, you know, the divorce law property principles is, is to do justice at the end of a relationship where people have thrown their lot in together and made decisions as a unit. So in this country, Washington State is the only place that will look at that couple and say, I don't care if you're married or not married. We're going to apply community property rules because that's the right thing to do here. Wow. Um, I think every other state should do that. I think it's the right approach. I think, I think making a bright dividing line for marriage works a great injustice on you know, the many people, mostly heterosexual, I might add, um, who live together, don't marry, yeah. um, and, and you know, make decisions in a way very similar to the decisions that married couples make. So I do that in the book um, for every different area of law, and sometimes I wind up not talking about couples at all, um, but you know, talking about the other purposes that laws have, like compensating for loss of an economic provider, right. um, you know, which isn't about being a couple. It's about you know, who is somebody actually supporting in a family unit, and why does it matter you know, what kind of relationship they have. And, and so I, I, in the book, I, I just apply that methodology to a wide variety of areas of law. So, you know, it seems like our, our definition of marriage is kind of dated because, uh, as you said, a lot of people are living together without getting married. Do you know how many, uh, uh, how, what, what percentage of the people stayed, live together, or, I mean, how many people there are? That I'm, I'm thinking, and I have to go back and look at, at the book um, for this, but I think in the 2000 census it was an 11 million. Wow. But I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's what it was. And how many of those were, like, uh, same-sex couples? Mm, this shows you haven't done my homework lately. Um, th that number is in the census, and I don't remember it. How did they distinguish that they were... Uh, you know, they were gay couples and not just uh, roommates. Uh, because there's a way in which you can identify on the census form that the, that the person is a is an unmarried partner of the same sex. 
Um, and I would commend to all your listeners the work of Gary Gates, who works out of the Williams Institute at UCLA right. and has done the most definitive research on, um, on same-sex couples coming out of the 2000 census and the updates since then. In fact, um, he put out a book called The Gay and Lesbian Atlas. Yeah, now, this, this is, um, you know, this is going back to the 2000 census, so it's a little outdated by now. Um, but it's fabulous. You can go and look up your state county yeah. by county and see how many same-sex couples live in every county in I'm the amazed. country. Yeah, even it's in Orange County. <laughs> yeah, Everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that, that data has been able to be used to say to lawmakers, look, you say that you don't have gay people living in your jurisdiction, but that's just not true because here they are, you know, in the census. Um, yeah, I love that book. So um, there's and and uh, Gary Gates and his um, fellow demographers will be actively working on the 2010 census to produce the same kind of material, which is very exciting. So that's the so that question may not be asked if the Census Bureau is. Uh is following its current uh, dictate. No, no, I, it will be asked. asked. The, quest, the oh. question is, if people say that they're married to somebody of the oh, same sex, how will they get counted? Because um, they may well be married in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, you know, in Canada. I mean, they are taking the position that they're married, and the census should be reporting it the way people report it, as opposed to just converting all those people to unmarried same-sex couples. Right. So the people will get counted. The question is, are they counted as married? Um, or unmarried same-sex partners. Um, and there definitely will be data coming out of the 2010 census. Oh, good, good. Do you, uh, do you, so you, you started off the program by saying that your students were, like, uh, embracing uh, this whole idea of uh, getting married. And uh, do you see the same thing with the people who are on the streets? Uh, I don't know if that's happening in Massachusetts, too, uh, or in uh, Washington, I mean, uh, where you are. Uh, do you see that uh, are people who are demonstrating against Prop uh, against Prop 8 in California or other places uh, in defense of uh, the right to marry, are they true believers in uh, gay marriage and don't think of other relationships? I don't know the answer to that, actually. I can tell you that in the when I speak to my students and as I um, have gone around the country in the last, um, you know, seven, eight months talking about the book, I find a lot of support for my point of view. And again, that goes back to how I started saying that basically, if you think of the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, you're talking about the last 12 years having marriage for same-sex couples be at the center of a public policy discussion. Yeah. Well, um, that means that, you know, the students who are now in their 20s, when they came up in the world as, you know, knowledgeable public policy interested human beings, that's what they saw. When I present this alternative vision, I see an enormous amount of support for it, enormous, among gay and straight students alike. So, you know, to some extent, I think um, there is a, a, a lack of knowledge about another approach. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know where we would be if we had more organizations that were putting this in the forefront. There's a group called the Alternatives to Marriage Project that works out, out of New York. Right. It is not a gay organization. It's an organization that basically takes the position that People shouldn't have to marry, that marital status discrimination is wrong. And, and they've done some terrific work. Um, they're a small organization, but they do have a website, which is unmarried.org. Um, and, and, uh, and if you go and look on their website, you'll see a lot of position papers, a lot of research, um, and, and really some terrific work. But, um, you know, I'd like to see more gay organizations pairing up with the Alternatives to Marriage Project. Um, and, and I think we're going to see some of that, by the way, um, in states that have constitutional amendments that ban gay marriage. How are they going to protect same-sex couples? They can't right. do it through marriage, so they're going to need to do it through a broader definition of family, and I think my work can be very helpful there. This whole uh, focus on the Mormon church uh, surprises me because Mormons in the past had multiple relationships. Uh, I know currently they, they don't, they frown on that, but... Um, so you would think that, you know, they would be uh, more open to 
alternative interpretations of marriage uh, <laughs> that they seem to be? Um, they are not open at all to any positive okay. legal treatment of gay men and lesbians, that's for sure. Although they claim that a lot of uh, the uh, congregation is lesbian or gay, and there have been some of those uh, members out there demonstrating. Um, so, well, anyway, we're uh, coming up to the end of our time. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. It's a uh, pleasure. And, yeah, yeah, we'll c- keep in touch. Uh, and and you might l- you let people know that the um, book has a website, beyondstraightandgaymarriage.com, and there's a link from there to a blog um, that I do where I try to keep people up to date on, on you know, developing stories that affect um, these issues. Well, and we'll put this online, this audio of this interview. Uh, Great, thank, thank you. you. you know. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Uh, that was uh, Nancy Polikoff, uh, the author of Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage, Valuing All Families Under the Law from Beacon Press in Boston, 2008. And as she said, there's a, a website, beyondstraightandgaymarriage.com. Uh, and there's a link to it from our uh, Subversity website. In addition, there's also a link to an article uh, on the Subversity blog, uh, written by John D'Amelio, uh, um, against gay marriage, actually. Um, and so you can take a look at that. So today, uh, this was our full hour interview with uh, Nancy Polikoff. This is Dan Sung signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI.